0: In straight up numbers, the USA is the largest economy to have ever existed in history. It produced more economic output last year than the entire world did in 1993, just 30 years ago. It's impossible to say by almost any metric that the influence of the USA is not going to shape the global economy for at least the next century, but for the first time in a long time it's going to be sharing that influence with some significant new rivals. By purchasing power parity, which is arguably a more accurate measure of true economic capacity, the USA is already a smaller economy than China, and while Chinese economic figures may be unreliable, it's not the only country that's going to challenge the US. By 2050, most economic projections have the US as the third or fourth most productive country in the world, behind China, India and potentially Indonesia. Now nobody can predict the future, least of all economists. But big global trends don't usually change that quickly and the world will need to prepare for a reality where the balance of global economic influence is not controlled by democracies. It's also important to ask why this is happening. The general assumption made by commentators and even most economists is that China and India just have more people so it makes sense that as they get access to the same technology and education enjoyed by countries in the west, their people will become just as productive on an individual level making the country as a whole much more productive on a national level. Now there isn't anything necessarily wrong with this assumption, nor is there anything necessarily wrong with the USA not being the largest economy in the world, and for most of human history it hasn't been. India and China becoming the world's largest economies would really just be a return to the status quo with the last century being the unusual one. But is this change an inevitability? Well some of the most influential economists in the world have said no. And they've also argued that the USA should take drastic actions like closing itself off to outside trade and defaulting on its debt, all to make sure it maintains its economic dominance. They've also argued that key decisions made in the last decades of the 20th century are to blame for the USA's falling international competitiveness, alongside a host of other issues like rising income inequality, stagnant wages, and less financial security for average people. Even if these arguments do seem extreme and perhaps even unconvincing, they can provide an amazing insight into the global cooperation and competition that has shaped our modern world so drastically in the last four decades. So why is it so important that the USA maintain its economic dominance in the world? How would closing off its border and defaulting on its debt help this goal? And finally, were its policy decisions responsible for allowing other countries in the world to achieve the success they have today? There are only so many hours in the day and if you're out there trying to build your business or side hustle, you're going to need some help. At EE we have designers, video editors and audio engineers helping to produce this content and I couldn't do it all without them. We use linkedin jobs for our hiring for EE and we suggest you do too. Hiring the right people is one of the hardest jobs for any business and can mean the difference between growth and success if you get it right or day to day frustration and stagnation if you get it wrong. So you want every possible advantage when picking the most qualified and most enthusiastic potential hires. LinkedIn jobs makes the whole process of finding and sorting people so much easier, which not only saves you time and money in your search, but helps you align with the right kind of people to join your team. The setup is simple and lets you use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to contact for the next stage of your hiring process. That's part of the reason small businesses love using LinkedIn for getting high quality hires. It's faster, everybody is already on LinkedIn, and on top of that it's free and incredibly easy to post a job. So go to linkedin.com/ee to post your job for free and find your next hire who might just take your business to the next level. Total global economic output or gross domestic product has increased significantly in the last four decades. It's now growing at the fastest rate in history both in absolute and relative terms, which is great. That growth is coming at a time where more and more countries are struggling to break into the global middle class, weighed down by large debt burdens and economic mismanagement. But in aggregate, the global economy as a whole is doing very well, pushed up by major economies with strong growth like Indonesia, India, of course China, but also the USA which is still growing at a respectable rate. Globalization is often used to explain this recent success. I'll freely admit that dozens of times on this channel we have spoken about free trade and the free exchange of skills and ideas and technologies as a major driving force of global prosperity, but we rarely stop to ask, why? The common explanation is a combination of increasing average worker productivity and comparative advantage. Comparative advantage exists between any two economies with different concentrations of the factors of production. Between China and the USA, China can produce a greater level of manufactured goods with the same amount of inputs that the USA can, so it has a comparative advantage in those goods. Now input resources can be simplified for the sake of this example to just money. If China was given 1 million US dollars they might be able to produce 50,000 microwaves meaning that each unit costs $20 and after shipping they would arrive in the USA for $25 each to be sold to consumers at $50 each, leaving $25 to be split amongst all the participants in this supply chain. If the USA with its higher wages and less established small goods manufacturing facilities could only produce 30,000 microwaves for the same 1 million US dollars then it just makes sense to buy the Chinese microwaves even after accounting for shipping costs. The US market benefits from getting cheaper goods, and China benefits from getting local industries. But these benefits are not equal, and they're getting more unequal with every passing year. Now, before we explain why, I want to give the small disclaimer that the theories discussed in this video were primarily proposed by the world famous economist Mb Samoyo. Who has not only researched some truly fascinating economic concepts in her academic career, but she's also backed it up by being a policy advisor to governments and sitting on the board of directors for some of the world's largest multinational companies to guide their economic strategy. Beyond being a better theoretical economist than I could ever hope to be, she also has practical experience advising the very same companies that have benefited most from globalization. So, if she and other economists in similar positions talk about these issues, it's certainly worth understanding what they're trying to say. In aggregate globalisation has been a benefit to the world, but those benefits have been heavily concentrated into just a few groups. The first are international companies that have gained access to lower cost centres for manufacturing and at the same time opened up new markets for their products. The second group of winners are workers in developing countries. The conditions in these factories, warehouses, ports and service centres are not good by western standards and wages are not either, but it was and still is a big improvement from subsistence agriculture. People in countries like China now have food security, access to quality education and widely available healthcare. The other winners are consumers around the world. The cost of basic manufactured goods has plummeted in recent decades thanks to manufacturing efficiency and low labour costs of a global workforce. Again, in aggregate these winners more than make up for the losers, but it would be irresponsible for economists to totally ignore these other groups while chanting for the greater good. The largest group that has lost out to globalization has been non-technical manufacturing workers in advanced economies that have been replaced by comparatively cheaper workers in developing economies. A large component of wage stagnation has been the downwards pressure applied by competition with the entire global economy. Another loser has been the US federal government itself. The enormous military budget of the USA has always been high, but today a large part of that budget is dedicated to maintaining global trade routes and maintaining peace in regions vital to trade. There are geopolitical concerns beyond just trade that will probably mean that the USA will inevitably spend a lot on defense no matter what, but a key concern has always been that US spending has allowed other countries, not even necessarily allies, to benefit from the security of safe oceans and relative global peace. The final group of losers have been regular people that aren't directly or indirectly benefiting from globalization because they have been outcompeted for limited resources by those who are. Real estate prices in global cities like New York, Vancouver, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Sydney and even Shanghai, Hong Kong and Beijing have all exploded in recent decades. Economists like Dr Moyo have argued that a large part of that growing gap between incomes and house prices has been caused by a small number of people who have benefited from globalization being able to use their extremely high incomes to buy up property easily out competing people that work in traditional industries. A city like San Francisco has seen average incomes rise significantly in recent decades thanks to the technology industry. Technology is one of the USA's largest exports, the big technology companies based around this city wouldn't be nearly as big if they only sold phones, computers and digital services to the US market. These companies instead bring in money from all over the world and pay it out to extremely high income earning individuals in equally highly value adding roles. If an employee at one of these companies designs a piece of software that can be replicated and sold all over the world, then their labour has added much more value than if that software was only sold in the United States. So they can be paid a higher wage and afford more expensive homes, easily outcompeting people that only produce goods for the domestic markets. The other problem is that technological superiority is not guaranteed. In doing business around the world, the USA and other traditionally advanced economies have shared their technology with developing countries so they could manufacture their consumer goods. Today global companies are catching up, China is developing their own aircraft, building their own global tech companies and they are already home to the world's largest EV manufacturer. While again this is a great thing for the global economy as a whole, it does give away the competitive edge that these economies have always had, all in exchange for slightly cheaper consumer goods. The economists working with this theory have also identified that all other things being equal, lower cost consumer goods are great, but they're not if they come at the expense of building a better economy. In the three decades after world war II, consumer spending accounted for roughly 60% of US GDP. The other components of GDP were government spending, investment and net exports. From the 1980s onwards, the year in which most economists identify as the true start of globalization as we know it today, consumer spending as a portion of GDP has grown to roughly 68%. Now an increase of 8% might not sound significant, but it means that the other components of GDP, investment, government spending and net exports, have shrunk from 40% of total output to just 32%, an absolute decline of nearly 25%. This means that the US has dedicated most of its economy to satisfying consumption over investment or government spending that could be used to provide public utilities. Consumption is fine, it's the end goal of any economy to improve living standards, But overconsumption that comes at the expense of maintaining infrastructure or giving capital to promising industries is going to hurt the economy long term because those investments increase the economy's capacity to produce even more in the future. The most visible area to see this is in infrastructure. While most infrastructure in the west is getting old and barely being maintained, developing economies in particular China, but also Indonesia, the Gulf states, Thailand, Vietnam and Eastern Europe are all building out new modern ports, rail lines, power plants and even tourist attractions to facilitate local industry. These are big projects that have collectively cost trillions of dollars across these economies. That's trillions of dollars that could have been given directly to people that on average earn much less than people in the west. But the decision was made to do this anyway because the hope is that it will provide even more value to these economies in the future. Some of these projects have even gone too far and become expenses that will never return positive economic outcomes. But too much of a good thing is still better than not enough. The last challenge is debt. The USA and other advanced western economies owe a lot of money to, well, one developing economy in particular. Household debt has also become an issue, accelerated by income disparities that as we saw earlier was in turn accelerated by globalisation. As people struggle to keep up with rising house prices and cost of living increases on stagnating wages, they are taking on more debt to make up the difference. That debt has been highly focused into real estate, which most people see as their primary investment. An idea which has been supported by a lot of governments in a lot of advanced economies through tax incentives and subsidies that artificially attempt to make real estate a more attractive investment than alternatives like shares that could fund productive companies. Even if you don't agree with the theories of these economists, it's a fascinating insight into how decisions made about global trade and cooperation have impacted all areas of our modern economies in ways that don't seem immediately obvious. But if countries like the USA really are getting the short end of the globalisation stick, Then what are the solutions? The most sensible solution would be to encourage investment over consumption, but not favour one type of investment over another. In addition, the US should enact policies that protect local industries, especially those that provide a lot of employment instead of concentrating it into the hands of a few highly skilled employees. This is already happening. The trend of friendshoring and onshoring has been growing since even before 2020 and was of course heavily accelerated by the global pandemic. Advances in automation too are going to reduce dependency on outsourced labour because machinery is starting to produce even highly technical items at lower prices than even the cheapest human labourers. Those were the practical solutions, but not the solution that Dr. Moyo and other economists get the most attention for. Their extreme solution was for the USA to totally shut itself off from the outside world, default on its debts and focus on building its domestic industries to be entirely self-sufficient. Now that does sound crazy. But before the second world war and even before the 1980s, that's pretty much how the US was run. Its growth rate during that period was similar to its growth rate now, and today it has an even higher capacity for self-sufficiency since it can provide for its own energy needs. This shock would hurt the American economy, but it would hurt competitor economies a lot more. China gets a lot of its economic power from holding US debt and providing the US with cheap imports. If it lost both of those instantly, it would probably completely cripple their economy. An economy that really needs to keep improving for their current regime to stay in power. In reality of course I'm sure that Dr Moyer knows that these extreme measures are never going to be taken and they probably included it to start the conversation or drum up some attention for their book sales. But if for nothing else other than a thought experiment it does make even the most passionate globalist economists rethink who the real winners are. In this video we spoke a lot about global debt. Now, last month we made an entire video on the 300 trillion US dollars owed around the world, so I didn't want to repeat too much here, but you should be able to click that video on screen now and hopefully add a lot of context to this one. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye.